Welcome to the AEM Education and Training Podcast from the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine and the AEM Education and Training Journal. I'm your host, Dr. Gita Pensa, and this is what we've got for you today. On this podcast series, we've talked often about how medicine requires a commitment to lifelong learning and how we might encourage that in our learners. Today, we are zooming in on the emergency medicine clerkship rotation and a paper called Creating Master Adaptive Learners During Emergency Medicine Clerkships. Lead author Dr. Guy Carmelli is here to discuss it with us. Dr. Carmelli received his medical degree at USC's Keck School of Medicine and completed residency and education fellowship at Kings County SUNY Downstate. He completed a master's in medical education at the University of Pennsylvania, and his interests are in resident education, curricular design, medical education research, and innovative digital design. He also has experience in novel teaching techniques, asynchronous learning, and education theory, and we are so happy to talk about creating master adaptive learners with him today. Don't forget to read the full text article available open access from the publisher for a limited time. Dr. Carmelli, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Okay, so you start your paper with a quote by Sir William Osler, uh, and that goes, Cultivate that power of concentration which grows with its exercise so that the attention neither flags nor wavers but settles with bulldog tenacity on the subject before you. Um, It's a pretty great quote in today's era of distraction. I feel like that could be taken one way (laughs) with distraction and phones, but that's a podcast for another day. But today we're talking about creating the master adaptive learner. So what did Osler have to say about this and why does it resonate with you now? Yeah, I think this is a great question because I obviously started the paper off with this, so I really care a lot. So Sir William Osler is known as one of the fathers of medical education, and he was very influential at shaping how medical schools are taught today. I felt it was only right that we have to start off this paper about medical education for medical students with a quote from him. Mm -hmm. Uh, This quote was actually taken from a book that he wrote in 1910 called, I'm going to butcher this, but Aquanimitus with other addresses <laughs> to medical students, nurses, and practitioners of medicine. Uh-huh. So it kind of discusses the idea of how students can succeed in any endeavor that they need to cultivate a value in something. So let's kind of look at this quote. Arsler knew that we needed to teach our new generation of thinkers how to actually put their mind to productive use. It's much harder than how things were being taught at the time. He discusses how in order to create good habits, we must tackle learning with a ferocious tenacity, which he alludes to a bulldog, something that is like very visual to all of us. Yeah. I imagine like a bulldog going after a bone (laughs) or a postal carrier or something. So this is an interesting new way to think at the time. Uh, I'm going to get a little meta geeky right now. Okay. If we take a look at learning theory over time, in the later 19th century, we had behaviorism learning theory. Mm -hmm. Here we sought to link learning to observable, quantifiable events or behaviors. So in behaviorism, it's stimulus response. So the classic example is like Pavlov's dog, where we link salivation to a bell ring. Mm -hmm. In academics, 
this is where we have our teachers repeat something over and over and over to our students until they perform well in a test. So at that time, a lot of medical education was given in large lecture halls with students being separated from patients for the purposes of learning. But that's not how Austin liked it. You know, mm -hmm. come the mid 20th century, we started thinking, we started having the cognitivism learning theory. So Osler started wanting to focus on how our students think rather than just how they respond to stimuli. This is why I love this quote, where we need to teach our students how to concentrate and think and grow on a specific task. And they will then develop their own, you know, good lifelong learning habits. So, you know, along these lines, there was a big proponent of moving, moving students away from the classroom and into the clinical environment. He famously said, I taught medical students in the wards. So we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but he was a big proponent of bringing apprenticeship to medical education. And so I really wanted to kind of start this paper off with, you know, this big idea. Yeah, it is a big idea. So it leads us to this principle of another big idea, the master adaptive learner model. So tell us about the principles behind this model. Yeah, so the master adaptive learner is an instructor focused guide that covers uh, models for training and teaching our future clinician educators. It was part of the AMA's MedEd innovation series. Uh, I think it was published in 2019. Mm -hmm. So it kind of describes the type of lifelong learning. And well, some of the key concepts here are about this idea of the adaptive expert. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of something I want to touch on a little bit. So this is the adaptive expert is different than what we previously considered as an expert. You know, classically, we would, you know, hover over students and teach them a bunch of stuff and until they get more and more comfortable and then we increase, you know, the challenge that we teach them and try to keep them in what's known as the zone of proximal development. And over time, you know, like scaffolding, we start to back off and let them go further and further on their own till they're completely self-sufficient and comfortable. And at that point, we could consider them experts and they can efficiently go through what they've been taught over the past few years. Mm -hmm. but, what, but what happens in this situation when new studies or new information or innovation comes out? Will they still be experts at that time? In the paper, there's like an interesting chart which di like dichotomizes innovation and efficiency. Mm -hmm. Like you can become really efficient at doing the same thing over and over, or you can learn, you know, innovation, but if you're trying new things, you're not going to become efficient at that new thing. And so it seems like they come, you know, at ends of each other. But the idea of adaptive expertise is where you become basically efficient at taking in new information or innovating. So this is kind of the concept of adaptive expertise, which is different than routine expertise mm -hmm. in that you become an expert at learning and growing and innovating until innovating becomes more efficient. This is very difficult to teach our learners early on because they're just trying to float and uh, learn the new information. 
But I think it's very important to include these concepts early because, you know, it's also hard to try to teach, you know, the old dogs who've been doing something a long way that you know, they got to relearn how they approach material. So I think that's why it's important to kind of incorporate it earlier and earlier in a student's education so that they're always striving to, you know, challenge themselves and innovate the new information. Right. So, uh, so this learning model has four phases. Yeah. Let's talk about those. Yeah. So that was the idea of like, why, why the master adaptive learning module, but what is it? So it's, it's kind of four phases that help you, the learner become an adaptive expert. A lot of these phases aren't necessarily unique. Um, there's a lot of different learning modules out there that are similar. A lot of learning modules have like four phases. For example, there's the plan, do, study, act model from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. There's also another one, the Colm's learning cycle. Here, the four phases are, you have the concrete experience, which is your feeling about something, mm -hmm. the reflective observation, which is, you know, watching what's being done abstract conceptualization which is thinking about it and then active experimentation doing so these are kind of similar phases i'll describe the four phases for the master adaptive learner model okay let's start off with the planning phase mm -hmm. here the student must recognize a gap of what needs to be learned this could be knowledge or skills or attitudes that they want to achieve it's kind of like in aa where you know the first step is Admitting that you have a problem, you're, you're, you have to say, I I don't know this thing. I need to learn this thing. Mm -hmm. So not only must identify what you need to learn, but you should plan out your approach for learning. So am I going to use textbooks or journals? Am I going to go to class or attend sim? What are the best and optimal resources to achieve the learning that I want to achieve? This leads into the next phase, which is learning phase. So oftentimes a student might skip the first phase and just go straight to this where they haphazardly wade through various resources, uh, textbooks and study sheets without any structure or reason. So hopefully they planned ahead of time, like this is the gap I want to fill and this is how I'm going to achieve it. And then during the learning phase, they have a dedicated protected space that they could actually focus on this thing with that bulldog tenacity that we talked about. <laughs> Next, we have the assessing phase. Mm -hmm. So the learners try out what they have learned and they have to compare and contrast it to their self-assessment with external feedback. So we have coaches watching and seeing if you're doing it correctly. And then the student must match what they're hearing externally to their gut feeling about if they feel like they were accomplishing what they wanted to accomplish. Okay. It's important that it's not just a one-way, you know, stream of information from the outside. Like the student had to actually be committed, had to have thought it through ahead of time, have to self-assess themselves, and then they can compare it to what they get from uh, external feedback. So it's a, it's a, it's important for it to be a two-way street at this point. And then finally is the adjusting phase. This is where you actually make changes into practice 
based on the new learning that occurred. This is kind of easier said than done. I mean, there's a lot of things I know I should be doing, but certain times, like, I don't, you know, on shift, I should be, you know, running the board or checking in with patients frequently or charting as I go or not over-ordering unnecessary tests. But, you know, for various reasons in shift, I may not do that. So here you have to, like, not just know what the things you need to do, but incorporate it permanently like into your uh, daily routine in order to like really stretch those, you know, lifelong learning muscles and always be willing to, you know, expand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And these phases aren't necessarily linear. You can come in at any point in this, depending on where you're at in a certain given topic. Right, 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 right. And you know that the ED is an ideal place to cultivate master adaptive clinicians, but most EM clerkships, the way they're set up now, are not really uh, in a place to facilitate the master adaptive learner model. So you, in your paper, propose some ways to adjust EM clerkships to incorporate the master adaptive learner model. So not to get too meta, but are you asking us to become adaptive learners also? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think everyone should become adaptive (laughs) learners. And we didn't necessarily have this when we were in our medical training, but by like working on these skills now, it'll only benefit us in the future. So if we are going to be adaptive learners and reimagine our EM clerkships uh, to create more master adaptive learners, uh, you and your team identified in the paper nine concrete ways uh, to do this in a clerkship. And so I'm going to list them and then maybe we can just talk about a couple of them. So you note um, that a suggestion could be to identify intrinsic motivation for master adaptive learning. The next is create learner guided goals, then encourage critical thinking, foster the development of strong on-shift learning habits, move to a coaching model of feedback, separate feedback from assessment, create a deliberate apprenticeship model. We're going to talk about Ulzer probably. Um, (laughs) Encourage autonomy and model lifelong learning. All right. So let's talk about the first one, identifying intrinsic motivation for master adaptive learning. What do you have for us there? Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot of research on the importance of intrinsic motivation here. What this is, is it's a task that is performed because it is inherently interesting or enjoyable to the person. And so a lot of these studies show just many benefits to intrinsic motivation. It can help foster lifelong learning. So you're always self-initiating activities and seeking skills and motivated to learn and growing yourself. And then it could also increase engagement. So this will increase inclusion and can fuel our students, residents' desires to work hard and continue to provide high-quality care for our patients. And then interestingly, intrinsic motivation can help build mechanisms to decrease burnout and improve wellness because you actually can see the benefits of the things you're doing and it fits in with your own interests. So as we went through... The master adaptive learner model, you'll notice a lot of what I said was hard. It's much harder than just sitting and reading something for a test. 
And so in order to get our students to agree to do this, they have to pick their own topics that they are intrinsically motivated to learn. This is a little bit different than like how a lot of EM clerkships are classically built, where we pick the topics ahead of time and the topics are more or less set in stone. So it means you kind of have to be a little more flexible in identifying things that the students care a lot about and melding it with, you know, the objective, you know, metrics that we need our students to learn. And so this will kind of lead into the next point in this paper, which is to help our students create learner-guided goals for the rotation in mind with their own motivation and interests. Okay. So how about uh, the point about fostering the development of strong on-shift learning habits? How might that look? Well, I'll tell you when it isn't. It isn't the do as I say, not as I do approach. Ah. (laughs) So it's one thing for us to teach our students in the classroom. This is how things should be done. But it's another to actually model this behavior in the clinical setting. So we're talking about modeling being professional, being proficient or efficient how you work, and actually practicing evidence-based. So if the faculty wants students to learn, for example, how to look things up on their own and ask proper questions, then we should show the students what we do mid-shift when we have a question. I know I, as a junior faculty, still have a lot of things that I look up constantly mid-shift. So why not make that transparent so that the students can see and I model, you know, oh, this question came up. I don't really know this. Let's look it up together. This is how, and then we can kind of model how I'm constantly myself lifelong learning for the student instead of just telling them to do that. How about separating feedback from assessment? Why is that important? Again, there's a lot of papers and research looking into feedback. We know that the best feedback is when students' defenses are down and they are in a good mental state to actually receive the feedback. We've all seen the opposite when we are, let's say, trying to tell a student or resident something, but they keep wanting to explain why it isn't their fault. You know, they're just not able to take in the information you're trying to give. The, the problem is most faculty involved in feedback are also the ones involved in helping shape a student or resident's grades. So this creates a tough situation. The learner knows what you say may negatively impact their grade. So they may be pre-programmed to be concerned if critical feedback is given. So in order to circumvent this, you should consider separating assessment for the purposes of grades from feedback for the purposes of improving a student's capabilities. This involves being more transparent to the students about how grades are derived and focus on summative assessment from a larger, more holistic pool of data. I'm talking about like from you know, participation and lectures and simulation from many meetings, or you can gather information from a student's performance from shifts overall over time, not just one single performance. So we kind of have our daily feedback sessions, which are more geared to be low risk, low stakes as a way to help a student improve so that they get better overall summative grades. And this is kind of something similar to the 
coaching model of mentorship, which we also discuss in this paper. And uh, so what is the deliberate apprenticeship model? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. So apprenticeship is a form of education that opposes the notion of self-directed learning from one of a legitimate peripheral participation. So a student can learn knowledge, skills, and attitudes by working alongside professionals with these skills. This is a model that Sir William Osler focused on within medical education, and he introduced students to the clinical environment as a result. So deliberate apprenticeship is a process where we gradually introduce a student to a field with dedicated and deliberate growth alongside a consistent teacher. This is a little bit challenging within emergency medicine as a typical EM rotation, a student might work with a different set of residents or different set of attendings with each shift. It's not ideal for the student because you know how it is. A student's always looking to, you know, impress and they have to relearn how each specific faculty likes to hear presentations or, you know, for what kind of autonomy the student has. And that doesn't allow the student to really develop an apprenticeship relationship and improve over time. So if you want to do deliberate apprenticeship in emergency medicine, it would mean to deliberately assign a student to a team for multiple shifts at a time. So either the same resident or the same faculty. This is similar to what is done in the medical or surgical wards where you join a team for the month. Unfortunately, this is very difficult to do as the schedules for attendings and residents often vary wildly. I did a, a pilot study actually at my shop a few years ago where I matched the schedule of students to a specific senior resident uh, for a given summer. And yeah, I mean, it had a lot of positive feedback and I was very happy with the study, but it admittedly took extra work for on my end to prepare their schedules. But if it's something you can accommodate at your top, then it's worth trying. All right. Okay. Of course, there's more in the paper, and I encourage everyone to read it. But uh, but you put all of it together with the example of Alex, who's a fourth-year student going into internal medicine, who shows up on day one for his mandatory EM clerkship. So tell me about Alex's experience. Yeah. I'm sure we've all been there. You know, at the beginning of the summer... We have a bunch of motivated students rotating in the emergency department. They're there. They're hard wo- hardworking. They're motivated. However, by the time, you know, February and March comes around and it's around match time, we start to see these students who match in the other fields and they have less interest in performing well on the mandatory EM rotation. So Alex is like a good example of how we can use the master adaptive learner model to help him through his experience in the emergency department and make it a more meaningful one and actually have him benefit you know, in his future career outside the ED. So it kind of shows that, you know, the master adaptive learner model is not specific to emergency medicine and will benefit all clinicians as they work towards being adaptive expertise. Awesome. So what would you like the readers of this paper to leave with? So I guess I think the Master Adaptive Learner book is just a great read for any medical educator. It is very clear and concise. It has a lot of great examples and ideas that you can incorporate into your specific curriculum. 
I have no financial disclosures. I don't have any stock in this book. But uh, in this paper, we gave some examples of how this can be used in an EM rotation. But honestly, I think you can take a lot of this to any other specialty or situation where, you know, like Osler mentioned, if one needs to form good habits with the tenacity of a ferocious but cute bulldog, <laughs> then this is the, the learner model for you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing these ideas. Um, the paper is wonderful, and um, I look forward to seeing more of your work. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me, and I look forward to coming back one day. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes at AEM Early Access, all one word. Don't forget to read the full text of this article, available open access from the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal for a limited time. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.